You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of the murders of Leslie Howell and Trevor Buchanan. Howell was born in March of 1959 and grew up in the Woodvale district of Belfast, a predominantly Protestant area. He had two brothers and two sisters and was the second youngest of the lot. The Howells were a close family, with his mother Sarah staying at home and his father working for the government training centre. It was an ideal childhood in the less-than-ideal setting of 1970s Belfast, Howell attended Shankill Baptist Church and went there three times on a Sunday. He went to Cavehill Primary School and then on to the Boys' Model School in Belfast. He did reasonably well in his studies but didn't really fit in with the athletic and macho culture of the school in general. In the mid-70s, his family moved to Portadown and Colin was more comfortable in Portadown College. At the end of his schooling, he missed out on medicine as his grades weren't good enough and he settled instead on dentistry at Queen's. There, he kept to himself. He was very religious, which didn't lend itself to the general activities at university. His lack of participation in university social life wasn't isolated to college clubs and nights out, though. Colin Howell didn't really date girls, either. He did become fond of porn magazines, though. But in 1980, he met Leslie Clark, who was a student nurse at Queen's. Leslie was the opposite of Colin. She excelled academically. She was the youngest of two and the only daughter in a military family and spent most of her childhood in Dawkey, County Dublin. She travelled to Protestant schools, attending Wesley and then New Park Comprehensive. Leslie was also more outgoing and gregarious than Colin and had more dating experience than he did. But Colin was persistent and a bit jealous. According to Derek Henderson, author of the book Let This Be Our Secret, Howell turned up outside Leslie's shared student house one evening, waiting for her to return from a date with another young man. When Leslie and her date arrived back, Colin got into a fight with the other man. After a slow start to their relationship, Colin Howell and Leslie Clark were married on the 16th of July 1983 in Belfast. They were both very religious, being evangelical Christians. Not everything was as it seemed, however, though both of them were strong in their Christian beliefs, including not engaging in premarital sex, Leslie had had three abortions in the run-up to their marriage at Colin's insistence. He had accompanied her to the clinics in London, but Leslie paid the bill each time, and she confided to a friend that she believed Colin would leave her if she chose to continue the pregnancies. According to Derek Henderson, both felt doubts about the wedding as it approached, but both also felt that perhaps what they'd been through together would ruin them for anyone else in the future. They decided to go ahead with it. At the time, Colin was preparing to finish his studies in dentistry. After his graduation, the newlyweds moved into a rented cottage in Port Ballantry, and Colin took shifts in a local dentistry clinic. 
Nine months later, they bought a home together in Colmore Gardens in Colrain. Everything seemed wonderful. Initially, Leslie took up a position with the Marie Curie Foundation and in Colrain Hospital, but she never settled there like she had in the Royal in Belfast. When their first child came along in 1984, Leslie decided to stay at home. According to author Derek Henderson, she would have liked to return to her work in Belfast, but Colin had no intention of leaving his job with the dentist practice he worked for. The Howells both threw themselves into the local Baptist church. Colin became the leader of the Youth Fellowship, and Leslie participated in weekly ladies' Bible studies. She didn't feel terribly fulfilled, though. She wasn't naturally a homemaker. Keeping a tidy house was hard for her, and she loved shopping and often ignored her budgets. In truth, she would have much preferred the challenge and independence of working in her chosen career. But that wasn't the plan. In 1986, Leslie had their second child, a girl. Five years after their move to the northern coast, Colin decided to go out on his own in business. He had wanted to try and prove himself and put more of himself into the practice that he worked for, but when his bosses weren't receptive to his new ideas, Colin decided to move on and set up his own dentist practice. In 1989, the third Howell child was born, just as money was becoming a problem. The new practice which Colin had set up in Ballymoney had become busy fast. But it was an expensive business to set up and run, and the Howells had bought a brand new luxury home, too. They were drowning in debt, and Leslie was struggling at home. Colin asked his former bosses if they might want to buy the new practice out, and he made inquiries about selling his new home, too. Around the same time, Colin strayed from his marriage and had a fling with an old friend from his university days. But after about a month, Leslie realised what was happening and confronted her husband and rang the woman involved. Leslie was told by her that the affair had ended. According to Derek Henderson, around this time, a receptionist at the dental clinic who was a friend of Leslie's said Leslie had called her one day while she was working and told her to take all the money from the safe in the practice, that Leslie was coming to get it. The woman was sure that Leslie was about to leave her husband but before Leslie arrived, Colin had had the receptionist deposit the petty cash into the bank. Things had gotten bad between the two. But worse was to come. A few months into 1990, Colin met Hazel Buchanan. She worked at the nursery school, where the Howells' daughter attended, and was married to a constable in the RUC. The Buchanans had two young kids of their own and were also members of the local Baptist church. Trevor Buchanan, Hazel's husband, was hardworking and adored his wife. Hazel was pretty, but unassuming. She was also spoiled. It was noted that she was demanding of Trevor's time and money and that they were often in strained financial circumstances. Hazel was houseproud to the point of materialistic and always needed to have the best and the newest and expected her every need to be met by Trevor immediately. Hazel and Colin attended the local swimming pool, and they knew each other to see, but it was during these lessons that the two became close. They began meeting each other outside of the swimming pool in secret, sitting in car parks, chatting and spending time with one another. They were seen around the town. Colin was friendly and confident, and Hazel had just begun to feel more independent in her new job, which her husband Trevor seemed to resent. 
and Hazel was seen by Howell as a more dependent, soft touch of a woman. They soon began meeting at Howell's dental practice after hours, or when Hazel's husband Trevor was working nights. Soon after the two began seeing each other, Leslie became suspicious that something was wrong. According to Derek Henderson, she told the housekeeper that she kept finding loads of 20 pence pieces in Colin's jogging pants, and that the only reason she could think of to need such an amount of change was to use a payphone, apparently in secret. Colin and Hazel were eventually also spotted by other members of their church congregation, and so Leslie approached John Hansford, the pastor in Coleraine. Pastor Hansford went first to Colin while he was at work, and in a room in the clinic away from other staff and clients, asked Colin if he was having an affair. Colin roundly denied it, but then Hansford went to Hazel. The two spoke privately, and Hazel also insisted that nothing like that was going on, though she admitted that she was frustrated by her husband's lack of ambition and the routineness of their life together. But when Hazel was driving Pastor John home, she broke down and confessed to him that she and Howell had been seeing each other for a short while. Hansford confronted Colin with this confession, and finally he also admitted that the two had been seeing each other but both parties said that they had not had sex with one another. Pastor Hansford told Howell that he was to stand down from his position in Coleraine Baptist Church and no longer take communion. Hazel also had to step back from her duties caring for the children during Sunday school, and it was arranged that the two couples would ensure to attend different services each Sunday so as not to cross paths. Both couples went to counselling with the pastor, but their involvement in the Coleraine congregation was so important to both Trevor and Leslie that neither family could see their way to leaving the church or finding another congregation. In October 1990, weeks after the initial confession, after counselling had begun and the measures were put into place, Colin had admitted to Pastor Hansford that the two had in fact been sleeping with one another. In fact, in the summer of 1990, the two had flown to London for Hazel to have an abortion. She had a terrible time on the way home, flying out the evening of the procedure against the advice of the doctors she had seen. It was Hazel's idea to end this pregnancy, though. She couldn't bear the idea of not knowing who the father of the baby was. There had been no way for her to be sure in the circumstances. The revelation that Colin and Hazel had been sleeping together was another blow to Leslie and Trevor. Church officials stepped in to try and help the couples navigate the crisis, as both were adamant that they wanted to try and reconcile and that divorce was not being considered. The Howells' kids went to stay with friends when the confession was made. Pastor Hansford had tried to prepare Leslie for the further admissions, but when Colin had said his piece, Leslie lunged at him, screaming. Hansford had decided to leave them alone, and after he went, Leslie locked herself in the bathroom and swallowed as many paracetamol tablets as she could, and took the car keys from Colin before driving off. Colin called the pastor to come back, and as the two men were trying to decide where to start a search for Leslie, she arrived back. It took 20 minutes with Hansford before he could convince Leslie to go with him to the A&E. She was admitted to Coleraine Hospital and stayed there for three days, Afterwards, she was humiliated even further that she had acted that way. She promised friends she would never do such a thing again, saying she couldn't bear the thought of leaving the kids. 
But despite appearances to the contrary, it was at that point that Colin completely disengaged himself from the marriage. He acted supportive and concerned for his wife's health, but in reality, he had made up his mind that the marriage was over. He began to perceive Leslie as neurotic and as a crazy woman. Leslie, meanwhile, went on a diet. Finding herself unable to stomach food, she said she might as well. She changed her hair and bought new clothes to try and salvage her life. She blamed herself for her husband's affair. There was no contact between Colin and Hazel between November 1990 and March of 1991. But despite engaging in the counselling, Pastor Hansford felt Colin wasn't being sincere and Leslie seemed to live in a constant state of agitation. She had no trust whatsoever in her husband and felt the need to check in on him and follow him to make sure that he wasn't lying to her. They would also have explosive arguments where Leslie often screamed at Colin. But none of this was apparent to anyone outside the house. In public, Leslie plastered a smile on her face and pretended that all was well. Trevor Buchanan was also doing his best to salvage his marriage, but his family was worried about his mental health. After all, his job was incredibly stressful as it was, and then to add in marital strife to all that, his police officer brothers knew the risks and consequences of that. Trevor assured his concerned brother Victor that he was coping and that there was no risk of Trevor finding himself feeling helpless. But things went wrong when Pastor Hansford told Colin that Hazel was doing well and had moved on from their affair. This seemed somehow like a challenge to Colin. When he was told this, he wanted to know it for himself, and in truth, he didn't really believe it. So at the end of March 1991, Colin called Hazel and asked how she was. Awful, she said. And with that, the affair was back on. According to Let This Be Our Secret, shortly after this, there was another explosive argument in the Howell House. Leslie would later tell a number of close friends about it, saying that she was doing so in case anything happened to her. She said that as she lay in the bath listening to music, Colin had come in and was lifting up a cassette player behind Leslie when the power cord somehow came away and landed on her arm as she sat in the water. She had gotten a brief shock before Colin begged her not to tell anyone about his quote-unquote silly mistake. In May of 1991, Leslie's father passed away. He had a massive heart attack in Leslie's home on the 7th of that month. He had moved nearby to Castle Rock after his retirement and had purchased a house which was part of a local landmark. The Twelve Apostles were a terrace of houses built in 1888 in a distinctive vernacular style, but due to recent ill health he had moved into a spare room in Leslie and Collins. He had collapsed in the kitchen while the Howells were out in the theatre that night and Leslie discovered him there on their return. He was only 69 years old. With her father's tragic death, Leslie had inherited well over £200,000. She told no one of the large sum beyond confiding in a few close friends that she was now financially independent and planned on leaving Colin. According to Colin, Leslie also began drinking heavily after the loss of her father and began to take the sedative medication that had been her father's which had been left in the house. 
Despite the concern he had for his wife's condition, it was noted by family members staying with them at the time that Colin was sneaking out of the house. Howell was continuing to meet with Hazel during this period. On the 18th of May, 1991, it was the youngest of the Howells' four children's birthdays. Howell spent the afternoon in the garage building a slide. Colin also periodically tried to ring Hazel throughout the day, but she was out with her husband and children on a very tense shopping trip. She wasn't able to ring him until that evening, and when she did so, it was quick and disjointed, as Trevor was only out in the garden and she was afraid of being caught. After the Buchanans had returned home, Trevor called over to a neighbour's house, the Johnsons, to see if Bertie Johnson might be able to help him fix a wheel on his son's bicycle. Johnson's wife, Liz, asked Trevor in for tea, but Trevor said it was close to dinner and he couldn't stay. Bertie told him that he would be able to help him with the wheel on Monday, as he'd need to get the right equipment. They noted that Trevor didn't seem himself and had a somewhat vacant look to his eyes. They figured he and Hazel had been fighting again. Trevor would call over to another neighbour, Derek McCauley, that evening too, staying with his friend for about an hour chatting before heading back home for the night. Leslie Howell spent most of the day out of the house too. She'd left initially to buy a birthday card for her small son and to get her hair done, and she'd also stopped to do other shopping in nearby Colerain. Leslie also called into a salon and had a session on a sunbed, booking her next appointment for the following week. She then stopped for coffee, where she was seen by a neighbour. The woman described Leslie as sort of going through the motions of life. On her way home, Leslie stopped to buy petrol in the local station, where the family had an account. The owner's wife was behind the till and was worried when she saw Leslie as she appeared unsteady on her feet when she got out of the car. The woman was so concerned that she rang Colin to let him know that she was worried for Leslie's health. When Leslie returned home, she settled down on the couch in the living room. She lit the fire, put on her headphones to listen to some music and poured herself a glass of red wine. The kids had been hyper and excited that day due to the festivities and Colin put them to bed much later than usual, at around 10pm. On the morning of the 19th of May, 1991, Colin Howell rang Jim Flanagan, an elder at the Baptist Church, looking for help. Leslie wasn't in the house, and Colin wasn't sure where she was. He asked Flanagan to go up to Leslie's father's house to see if she was there, thinking she might have decided to go there to deal with her grief. Colin explained that the family car was gone and that there was no one to look after the kids, so he was stuck in the house. Flanagan agreed and went by the Twelve Apostles, but everything seemed fine and quiet. There was no sign of anyone there. When he delivered this news to Colin, Howell told him he'd made inquiries with the police and hospitals, but there was no word of Leslie there either. Howell explained to Jim Flanagan that Leslie had left the house the night before, and he was worried that there had been a car crash. He also thought aloud that maybe she and Trevor Buchanan might be together, as the two had been confiding in each other of late. As an elder of the church, Flanagan knew about the marital difficulties that both the Howells and the Buchanans were working through. Howell then asked if Flanagan might call the ferry companies to see if Leslie had gone off somewhere. He was becoming more and more agitated. 
Colin went over the events of the night before with Flanagan, saying that Leslie had come home with a box of wine and started drinking. Colin said he'd left the house at about 10 for a few minutes, and when he returned, Leslie was on the phone, just hanging up. He asked if it was Trevor she was speaking to, and Leslie got mad, giving out about his affair. Colin decided to leave Leslie be, as she was drinking wine on the couch, and he went to bed. But then, at about half past 11, he heard Trevor in the house. He got up and went into the sitting room, and Trevor made as if to strike him. Howell said he'd restrained Trevor, who immediately stopped and apologised. Leslie laid into Colin, however, and told him to get out, so he went back to bed. Colin reckoned that Trevor was in the house for no more than ten minutes. That morning, Colin had gotten up at twenty past eight. He saw that the garage door was open and the car was gone, and then noticed Leslie wasn't asleep on the couch, as he'd expected. Then, Colin had found a note. Howell showed Flanagan the note that he'd found in the kitchen that morning. It read, quote, Dear Colin, I'm just trying to sleep now. For how long, I don't know. Thank you for your help over the past few days and for the good times in our marriage. I don't know what to say to you because I don't know how I feel, but I have seen that life goes on after a few weeks of pain and, let's face it, Colin, I am nothing in comparison to what you have lost in the one you loved a while back. If I wake up in the morning, just let this be our secret. Leslie. End quote. It sounded to Flanagan like Leslie might have decided to go somewhere, but he wasn't really sure what the letter meant. Colin rang another friend from church, Derek McCauley, who was also a neighbour of the Buchanans, and asked him to come to the house. Colin told him that Trevor had come by the night before and there had been a brief struggle between them, and that Leslie had then left the house with Trevor, and she hadn't returned since. Macaulay noted that Colin didn't seem injured at all, but he was very agitated. Macaulay agreed to go check Leslie's late father's home too. He was a bit apprehensive because he didn't want to end up coming across Trevor if he was upset or perhaps gone a bit mad due to the state of his marriage, but he decided to enter the house anyway as it was unlocked. He was careful to call out to Trevor and identify himself as he made his way upstairs in the small house because as a police officer, Trevor would have had access to a gun. But there was no one upstairs. Macaulay then went round the back of the house and saw that the Howells' car was parked in the garage. But when he thought he saw someone peering at him from a window in the house, he turned back to investigate there once more. But once again, he found no one. So Macaulay returned to the Howells' home. The only thing unusual he reported to Colin was the car and a faint smell of gas he had picked up near to the garage. Colin seemed sure now that Leslie and Trevor had gone to the house and asked Mr. Flanagan to go back yet again to check that they weren't there somewhere. Colin had rang him after Sunday service had ended to say that there was still no sign of Leslie. This time, when Flanagan headed to the Apostles, he was joined by an off-duty policeman, David Green. They searched the house, noting the unlocked front door and the light on in the kitchen. They also found the back door was left ajar. Then the two men headed out back after a thorough search of the house and opened the garage. Immediately, they saw Trevor Buchanan sitting in the driver's seat of the Howells' car, which had been reversed into the cluttered space. His hands were on the steering wheel and the driver's door was slightly ajar with the window open. 
As the two men moved to the back of the car, they discovered Leslie Howell lying in the boot. Neither had a pulse, and a hose had been attached to the exhaust pipe. Leslie Howell and Trevor Buchanan had both died. There was a faint smell of exhaust, and the air was slightly smoky. The local coroner was called and was informed that there had been a sudden death in Castle Rock. A routine call but it was unusual to hear that the police suspected that the incident was a double suicide, certainly not a common occurrence. At 9am that morning, Jim Flanagan had called to the Buchanan house to see if Trevor was there, and Hazel had told him that her husband had been gone since the early hours. Hazel said she'd awoken sometime around 3 or 4 that morning, she wasn't really sure of the time, to voices in her house. She recognised them as Trevor and Leslie but Hazel had stayed in bed and didn't interfere as they were talking normally and she didn't think it was a good idea to confront Leslie. She went back to sleep and woke at 5am. Trevor wasn't in the bed with her. Hazel saw the family car parked on the drive when Trevor normally parked in the garage and for some reason she couldn't settle back to sleep, so she got up and began tidying the house. At lunchtime, Hazel was informed that the body of her husband and that of Leslie Howell had been discovered. Both Leslie and Trevor were buried on the same day. Leslie's funeral took place first. It was attended by hundreds of family and friends and people she'd known through nursing. Throughout the service, Colin was noted as being detached and cold. He seemed to be in shock at the sudden loss of his wife. The children didn't really understand. It was emotional and tense, especially given the circumstances around Leslie and Trevor's deaths. The affair had been an open secret in the community. Hazel had initially requested that Trevor's service take place in the local funeral home, but his family had intervened and ensured that he had a funeral in the church that he had loved. It was an emotional moment when his family first got to view his body in the small room in the undertakers. The service itself was similar to Leslie's. Hundreds had gathered to mourn the sudden loss, but in the end, His family wasn't happy with how the service had been presented by Pastor Hansford. They asked a Church of Ireland priest in attendance to say a few words at the graveside to compensate. The Buchanans were angry at Hazel. She had had the affair that led to Trevor's death, even though they knew that rationally there was no way for her to have predicted that suicide would have been the end result. They were also upset to hear about Hazel and Trevor's counselling after the affair. They thought it was inappropriate that Pastor Hansford had been dealing with the situation and acting as a counsellor for both couples. They were also unhappy to find out Pastor Hansford had actually been away for a number of weeks and unavailable to both Trevor and Leslie in the period before their deaths. Hazel was noted as being detached from the funeral service. In the immediate aftermath of Trevor's death, she hadn't been terribly emotive, but many people put that down to dealing with the shock and guilt of what had happened. But the funeral was awkward. She wore a short black skirt and a red jacket with cleavage on show, and some said it appeared that she didn't care as she stood in the church. It was odd and uncomfortable, and a lot of people in attendance skipped spending time with Trevor's family afterwards because of how strange it all felt. Perhaps it was understandable that Hazel's mind seemed to be elsewhere at this time, however. Within a day or so of the discovery of her husband's body, she received a letter from Colin, who had it delivered through their friend, Derek McCauley. 
The letter asked Hazel to let him know if it was true what he'd been told by Pastor Hansford, that she wanted nothing to do with him. It set out his objections to what he thought would be her views against them getting together, after an appropriate period of time for them to mourn their losses. Meanwhile, to others, Colin began making apologies, taking responsibility for the effects that his affair had had on his family and others, and the damage he had caused. He offered keepsakes of Leslie's to her distraught and shocked friends. According to Derek Henderson writing in Let This Be Our Secret, Colin even offered Leslie's brother the tape of gospel music Leslie had been listening to as she died. But her non-religious brother Chris thought it was ghoulish and awful. He had to refuse it a number of times. Meanwhile, Hazel was turning into herself and away from those in the church who rallied to support her. She felt as if people were looking at her in the street. She was embarrassed and finding it hard to cope. She tried to avoid people. Her friends knew she was still in contact with Colin, despite the fact that both had found churches outside their community. Hazel headed to Limavadi and Colin began attending the Barn Fellowship Church near Ballymoney. Colin and Hazel resumed their affair six weeks after their partner's funerals, and though they tried to keep everything secret and discreet, they were once again seen together around the town. However, the guilt that Hazel felt was real. She became so filled with anxiety that she found herself unable to have sex with Colin. For a while, Colin went along with this, engaging in everything but, because Hazel was unable to go further with him. But then they discovered, while Hazel was having some routine dental work completed by Howell, that she was able to go through with it if she inhaled the gas and air used in the practice, nitrous oxide. They'd have sex this way a number of times. Howell once went further and injected Hazel with a powerful sedative in order to have sex with her. He seemed to enjoy this, despite the fact that Hazel was utterly prone and unresponsive, though conscious throughout. Howell had got what he wanted, and Hazel didn't have to deal with the guilt. Nearly a year after their deaths, the inquest into the double suicide of Trevor Buchanan and Leslie Howell took place. On the 14th of May 1992, Colin Howell and Leslie's family, along with Hazel Buchanan and Trevor's family, gathered in the courthouse in Colerain for the procedure. The results of the post-mortems conducted on the two bodies were given. Trevor had an abrasion on his left knee and a cut on his lip. A blood sample revealed a very low amount of the drug temazepam in his system, as well as the effects of carbon monoxide. Leslie's results were similar. There were no injuries to her whatsoever. She had alcohol, nordiazepam, and temazepam in her system, as well as the result of carbon monoxide. Both amounts of sedatives in their systems was relatively low, and it was therefore concluded that these drugs had not contributed to their deaths. Leslie's blood alcohol level wasn't even all that high either. Gillian Hunter, who had seen Leslie at the petrol station, told the coroner's court about seeing the woman the night of her death. Pastor John Hansford also gave evidence. Colin Howell and Hazel Buchanan were also called to give their accounts of the night, with Colin also giving details of the course of their marriage. Hazel was nervous speaking before the court. She told the court about her relationship with her deceased husband and the affair, and its effects on her marriage. The court then heard from the two men who had discovered the bodies and a doctor and police officer who had attended the scene. 
the coroner's court concluded that both Leslie and Trevor had died by suicide. Over the next few months, Colin and Hazel slowly ramped up their relationship again, and Colin spent a lot of time at Hazel's house. The children all knew each other and got on well for the most part, but four years into the relationship it was clear that things weren't working. Howell tried to convince Hazel to move to Scotland with him, but she didn't want to leave. Then he proposed to Hazel, but she refused, saying she couldn't cope with all the children. Eventually, Howell discovered Hazel was seeing someone else, a man she'd first met in her teens named Trevor Macaulay. Howell caught them having dinner together and had seen the other man's car at her house when she'd told Colin that her sister was visiting. Hazel and Trevor Macaulay were together for eight years until Hazel cheated on him too. Derek Henderson interviewed Mr. Macaulay and it seems very clear that their relationship was not one of equals. Macaulay recalled spending a lot of time and money with Hazel and her children, but that Hazel had made it clear she would not do the same for his kids. She never spent any time with them. And there was little to no intimacy in the relationship either, again something Hazel had objected to. According to him, Macaulay functioned more as inoffensive company and a pot of money for Hazel. She had no intention of marrying him and she told him as much when she ended the relationship adding that she didn't know that she had ever actually loved him. She began a new relationship with David Stewart, a retired superintendent with the RUC and policing consultant. They'd met at the gym, but he left for Europe for a year soon after. When he returned, he decided to pursue a relationship with Hazel. A few months after she had officially finished with Trevor Macaulay, in January of 2005, Hazel and Stewart were engaged. They got married six months later. Colin Howell also moved on after his relationship with Hazel finished. In December of 1996, he met a young American woman at a Christian singles night organised by a friend but held in Howell's own home. Kyle Jorgensen was 30 years old at the time and from New York, but had moved to Northern Ireland with her two children in 1996 after leaving an unhappy marriage. She was studying Irish history at the University of Coleraine. Howell and Kyle got married in May of 1997. Soon after that, Kyle announced she was expecting their first child together, adding to her two and Howell's four. They built a large luxury house on Glebe Road to accommodate the growing number of people in their family. Kyle gave up college and Howell spent much of his time at work. Colin Howell had poured his efforts into building his business. In the early 2000s, he had opened up a practice specifically for cosmetic dental work. His general dentistry and work carried out for the NHS continued in other offices, but Howell spent most of his time in this new office. He advertised locally and in the Republic, promoting not only his self-proclaimed expertise, but also promoting a better deal for customers willing to travel to the North. However, running a large and successful dentistry business and owning a number of properties wasn't enough for Colin Howell. Through a friend in the church, Howell had heard about a scheme to find lost gold buried in tunnels in the Philippines by the Japanese during World War II, known as Yamashita's Gold. This friend was connected to an American missionary who said he was involved in the search for the long-lost treasure. 
Colin was told that these searchers had secret information as to where the gold was hidden, and it had to be kept that way as people had been murdered over it in the past. Colin put a total of £353,000 into the venture, in various amounts over the space of a year. Each time he was asked to hand over money, Howell was told a story about how the dig had run into difficulties, but was simultaneously reassured that they were so close. He believed that it wouldn't be long before they were all richer than their wildest dreams, so long as he could help them out with another 50 grand. Finally, in December of 2008, Howell flew to Manila to meet his contact, and he was presented with their findings. Old paper money and silver dollars. It was then that Colin realised he'd been swindled. Between his losses there and the tax bill he was facing for his growing business, there were huge financial problems brewing for Colin Howell. His entire livelihood was in danger. Just before his trip to the Philippines in 2008, Howell confessed to friends in the church that he had once again been unfaithful. He said he couldn't take the guilt anymore and was going to tell Kyle. She travelled to Florida for the Christmas holiday that year where her parents lived with their children. Colin was to follow her over with the older kids after his trip to the Philippines. But on his return back to Ireland, Colin realised that it was time for him to come clean about everything. He rang Kyle while she was in Florida and told her what had happened. He'd cheated on her and he had lost all of their money. Kyle told him not to get on the plane. Kyle Howell kicked Colin out of the house when she got back from her family visit and he moved into a caravan in Castle Rock. Howell was allowed back into the house to read stories to the kids and put them to bed, but that was it. Over the following weeks, Howell told his wife Kyle that he was considering taking his own life, but she convinced him not to. She did say, however, that she was going to tell their church elders at the Barn Christian Fellowship what was going on in their relationship. She contacted them and set up a meeting, and Howell called his office and cleared his appointments for that day. And so, on the 29th of January, 2009, Howell dropped the kids to school, made a quick visit to his caravan, and then arrived back at the family home, where the church elders and his wife awaited him. Colin Howell began making his confession. One of the elders, Willie Patterson, described Howell's demeanour during the conversation later to the police, saying, quote, Colin looked awful. I don't know how to describe it. His eyes were standing out of his head and he was in great distress, end quote. The man was obviously very emotional, but he spoke calmly while his body shook. Howell had spoken to the elders before in a less formal way about his recent transgressions, and there had once again been a hope that a reconciliation might be possible. But this time, as they sat in the living room, Colin Howell slowly and consistently told the elders of things that he had never mentioned before, beyond the depression that was affecting his ability to work and the huge amounts of money he had blown in the get-rich-quick scheme. Howell confessed to the gathered elders that he'd told his first wife, Leslie, to have three abortions in the run-up to their wedding. He'd also asked his former lover, Hazel Buchanan, to have an abortion in 1990. Colin Howell then revealed that his misdeeds had also bled into work life. He admitted having assaulted female patients while they were under sedation for their dental procedures in his practice. According to author Derek Henderson, as Howell spoke, Kyle quoted the Bible to him and begged him to come clean once and for all, 
to clear his chest and his soul of his sins. Howell soon broke down and told the men gathered what had happened 18 years before, in May of 1991. To their dismay and shock, he admitted to them that he had killed his first wife Leslie and Trevor Buchanan, and then he'd made it look like a double suicide. Once those words were out of his mouth, it seemed that Howell could not stop talking. At last, he was making a full confession to every single transgression, those that his wife and friends and spiritual advisors had known about, and those most shocking ones that they did not. When the full confession was over, the police were called that morning at a quarter past ten. Kyle was distraught. Three police officers arrived to the house just before noon. Howell himself answered the door and then they sat with the elders who explained what was going on. Howell was arrested and taken into police custody. He was brought to the police station in Coleraine and deposited in an interview room. When asked if there was anything he'd like to tell the police, he basically asked them where did they want him to start. Through three days of interviews, he told them exactly what had happened. On the 18th of May 1991, while Leslie was out of the house in Coleraine, Colin went into their garage. He told police that there, he had spliced together a garden hose and a baby's bottle to create a device to funnel carbon monoxide through. After putting the kids into their beds, Howell said he had blocked their rooms closed with a hockey stick. As Leslie lay sleeping on the couch in the sitting room, Howell connected the hose he had prepared to the exhaust pipe of his car. The baby bottle made a good seal with the metal of the pipe. Then he ran the hose through the house and into the living room, placing the end just a few inches from his sleeping wife's face. Howell went back out to the garage and turned on the car and went to the hallway to observe his wife. Howell described for police how he had stood watching her there for a number of minutes until she stirred and weakly called out for their eldest son. Colin got a shock. He hadn't thought that Leslie would be able to wake, and the fact that she was calling out told him she knew something was terribly wrong. Colin decided to enter the room and pinned his wife to the couch to ensure that the hosepipe remained in place and that Leslie would continue to inhale the toxic gas. When it seemed that Leslie had stopped breathing, he left the room for a few minutes to clear his head of the carbon monoxide, and when he returned, he checked once more to see if Leslie was breathing. She was not. At this point, Howell said he began to move quickly. Time was of the essence. He rolled up the hose and put it away in the back of the car. He undressed Leslie, removing her nightclothes and dressing her again in leggings and a top. Then he put his wife's prone body into the boot of the car, covered her with a sheet, and put his bike on top of her. Colin picked up a few pictures of the kids and Leslie's Walkman, and then checked that the kids were still sound asleep, and got into the car. It took Colin ten minutes to drive to the Buchanan's house. When he pulled into the driveway, Hazel opened the garage door for him, and he reversed in. Trevor was asleep in the master bedroom of the small bungalow. Colin said that Hazel had crushed up some lorazepam that Colin had given her and put it into a tuna fish sandwich that she'd fed her husband for tea. Howell recalled that he was annoyed to see that the sandwich had been left out on the counter and that the crushed pills were actually visible in the tuna. 
Nevertheless, Colin said he got to work quickly, attaching the hose again to the car and running it the short distance up the hallway of the Buchanan's house, placing the end of it on Hazel's pillow. After he turned on the car, he returned to the doorway of the master bedroom to observe. But Trevor stirred in his sleep and Colin panicked. Howell said that he entered the room and tried to cover Trevor's head with the duvet to make the pipe more effective. But the sleeping man had roused and a struggle ensued. The two men fell to the floor next to the bed, but Colin managed to shove the hose into Trevor's mouth, wrap him in the duvet and hold him in place until Trevor stopped struggling and stopped breathing. Then Colin and Hazel went about cleaning up and covering their tracks. The hose that had been used in both murders was chopped up and burned in the Buchanan's fireplace. Again, Howell dressed Trevor Buchanan in clothes. The bed was stripped and Hazel put the sheets in the washing machine, and Colin told her to vacuum the floor to make sure that there was no physical signs of a struggle left in the room. Colin had both bodies in the back of the car and he drove away from Hazel's house. He stayed off the main roads, afraid that he might be pulled over by the police, which was a relatively common occurrence in Northern Ireland at the time. His first stop was along the road bordering the local golf club. He took his bike from the back of the car and hid it in a ditch there. Then he drove towards the beach to leave the bodies, but he changed his mind, realising that people would be out early in the morning to walk there and that his footprints might be left in the sand. Instead, he found himself up at the terrace of houses where Leslie's father had lived, the Apostles. It was a peaceful place which looked out to the sea. Howell drove around the back of the houses and opened the garage at the back of Mr. Clark's former home with his hands covered in surgical gloves from his dental practice. Howell then parked the car. He removed Trevor from the boot and placed him in the driver's seat. He left Leslie in the boot and placed the family photos next to her body. He put her earphones on her head and pressed play on her Walkman. Then Howell attached an old vacuum hose to the exhaust pipe and ran it into the car. Howell turned the car on and slid through the open driver's side window before leaving the garage and closing the door behind him. The only things he took with him as he began his jog back to where he'd left his bike was a small plastic bag holding the sheet he had used to cover the bodies in the boot and the gloves he'd used to open the garage. He arrived home somewhere near to half past five in the morning. The Howell children were still asleep in their beds and Colin rang Hazel to go over what she was to tell police when they inevitably called. She was to say that she had heard Trevor on the phone speaking to Leslie that night. Then Howell burned his clothes, the gloves and the sheet in his fireplace. He rummaged through Leslie's belongings and located a note she had written to him some time before. He had stumbled upon it quite by accident, but it served his purpose perfectly now, despite the fact it was crumpled and didn't look like it had been freshly written. He put it aside in the kitchen for him to find later. Howell also informed police at this time that he had previously confessed the murders to Kyle. He told her that he'd killed Leslie within two years of marrying Kyle after the birth of their first child. Howell said he hadn't gone into the full details, but did say he'd used a garden hose to gas both Leslie and Trevor Buchanan. After some time to grasp what her husband was saying to her, Kyle had told him that they needed to call the police. 
but Colin had told her that she needed to think of the children. They needed to make sure that they'd be taken care of before any of that. And, he said, it had been so many years, what was a little more time? In a combination of denial and a belief in the ability for Christians to redeem themselves, Kyle had put the whole matter as far out of her mind as she could. She was also kind of stuck. If Howell was gone, there was no way she could take care of her kids, or Howell's kids, whom she'd taken in as her own. With no family in Ireland to turn to, Kyle just got on with things. Colin Howell was formally charged with the murders of Leslie Clark and Trevor Buchanan at the Coleraine Magistrates Court. He informed this court that he would be pleading not guilty and was remanded to custody in Magaberry Prison. Kyle left him within a few months of his going to jail. Shortly after, Howell had a sort of breakdown in prison. He was found rocking in his cell and taken to the medical ward, and was admitted there for observation and assessment after it was determined that he was a risk to himself. He was claiming to hear voices, urging him to do violence against his family and himself. Howell was due to have a psychological assessment anyway, in preparation for trial. He was seen by three consultants. Initially, Howell appeared paranoid and presented with psychotic episodes, but as his condition stabilised, or perhaps as he copped onto himself, Howell was diagnosed as a narcissistic fantasist with grandiose ideas about himself. By April of 2010, he was considered fit to plead. And so, on the 18th of November 2010, Colin Howell appeared once more in court, where he pleaded guilty to the murders of Leslie Clark and Trevor Buchanan. At his sentencing on the 3rd of December, Mr Justice Anthony Hart revealed that, had Howell insisted on going through a trial and had been found guilty, he would have faced a sentence of 28 years. But, taking Howell's confession into consideration as a mitigating factor, Mr Justice Hart handed down Howell a sentence with a 21-year minimum term to be served. There was, however, a trial in this matter. Collins' confession had made clear that he said Hazel Buchanan had been involved in the planning and the murder itself. Hazel Stewart, as she was now, appeared in the magistrate's court on the 2nd of February 2009, having been arrested five days before in her home. Police objected to bail in that court, saying it was their fear that Hazel might harm herself if she was not kept in police custody. But the courts decided that she was best off at home, and, under strict conditions, she was granted bail once a bond of £15,000 was assured. Hazel Stewart's trial began in February of 2011 in the Coleraine Crown Court, again with Mr Justice Anthony Hart presiding. A jury of nine men and three women were selected, and the Crown was represented by Kieran Murphy. Paul Ramsey appeared on behalf of Hazel Stewart. The discovery of the bodies was described. Pastor John Hansford described his interactions with both couples in the months before Leslie and Trevor's death. Then, Trevor McCauley told the court about his relationship with Hazel and what she'd told him of her relationship with Howell. The elders from the Barn Fellowship Church described Howell's confession and the moments leading to his arrest. The jury also sat through days of listening to audio from police interviews with Hazel after her arrest. 
On those tapes, Hazel admitted the affair with Howell to them, but didn't initially want to discuss what had happened around the time of Leslie and Trevor's deaths. She told them that she had been too scared to say anything against Howell when he came up with the plan. She said that Trevor had taken a pill to help him sleep that night, but insisted that she had not given it to him. She had no idea how the pill had entered the house. Later, she admitted that she had encouraged him to take it. Hazel Stewart told the police that she knew Howell's plan wouldn't have worked without her cooperation, but said she felt she couldn't stop him. At one point, Hazel told police that she had told Howell to leave the house that night before he'd gone into the master bedroom. When asked about how she'd helped to clean up the scene after Trevor's murder, Hazel, ever the good housewife, said she had simply been tidying up. Hazel admitted that her relationship with Colin Howell had continued after the killings, but said that she'd been scared of Howell and that that was the only reason it had continued. Howell had wanted it and he was so controlling that she'd done what he'd asked. She told police, quote, he was very controlling. Maybe I was easy prey and that's how I look back on it and see that. He's a very calculating person, a very clever guy. I'm not very bright, unfortunately, but he was a step ahead of me the whole time. I was scared. I thought, if I say something against this, he'll kill me, End quote. At the end of the interview, Hazel was asked if there was anything else she wanted to say before they concluded, and she said she wanted to apologize to her current husband, David, and her kids. She said the biggest mistake of her life was meeting Colin Howell. And then, four days into the trial, Colin Howell himself took to the stand. Howell described his marriage with Leslie. He said that in the period before her death, Leslie was drinking a lot and not taking care of the children properly. He described himself as a super dad at points. Howell described one secret conversation he and his mistress had had while sitting in his car in the town to discuss their plan to do away with their spouses. He told the court, quote, At that meeting in the car, Hazel was not confused about what the outcome would be. She understood the simplicity of it and what she had to do. End quote. Throughout their cross-examination, it was clear that Hazel Stewart's defence team were trying to demonstrate that Howell had lied in his confession. Firstly, they asked Howell about his various depictions of Hazel. He had initially said that she was naive, unintelligent, passive and submissive. However, on the stand, Howell insisted that this was not entirely accurate. Although Howell admitted that he could be controlling in certain circumstances, he said that Hazel had been too. She was manipulative, Colin said, and was the one that had drawn them into their relationship. Anything that they had done, they had done together. He described it as a waltz and said that Hazel had followed his lead. He hadn't had to drag her across the dance floor, he said. She was his accomplice. On the stand, Howell's demeanour was noted as being confident. It seemed more like he was delivering a lecture than testifying in a trial while discussing his murder of two people. Hazel's defence counsel put it to Howell that his confession in this case had been entirely motivated by money or the loss thereof, and the defence team was arguing that so were the murders. Colin Howell had killed his wife and Trevor Buchanan for monetary gain. But Howell insisted on the stand that he had nothing to gain from his confessions, 
and that all he had wanted to do was to tell the truth, to confess what he had done and to begin to put things right. Hazel's defence team pointed out that after Leslie's death, Howell had gained over £300,000 worth between her inheritance from her father and the life insurance policy that Howell had cashed in. They argued that there had been a motive for Leslie's murder by Howell beyond trying to pursue his relationship with Hazel, and if this was his true motivation, it was possible that Hazel had no idea what was to happen that night. Hazel Stewart did not take the stand in her own defence. So, when the defence rested, Mr Justice Hart delivered his instructions and summing up. He said that the jury were to make their decision based on the evidence presented in court. He explained the notion of joint enterprise, saying that it was not necessary for an accomplice to have actually helped to commit the murders, but rather it was enough that she was simply part of the plan to commit them. Nor did the term plan have to mean that there was some sort of formal agreement. It could be something far more subtle, like a nod or a look. Mr Justice Hart also pointed out that Hazel Stewart's defence had not presented anything which contradicted Colin Howell's version of events. The jury retired on the 2nd of March 2011 and requested the transcripts of the final parts of Hazel's interview with the police. Two and a half hours later, the jury returned. They found Hazel Stewart guilty on both counts of murder. She was handed down the mandatory life sentence with her minimum term to be set at a separate hearing. Two weeks later, Hazel Stewart appeared once again to find out how long she would be imprisoned for. She had offered very little in terms of mitigation and, unlike Howell, didn't even have a guilty plea in her favour. A number of letters were handed up for the judge to consider from workmates, friends and family, which outlined her good character and her relationships in the community. When Mr Justice Hart spoke, he referred to the victim impact statement that had been given up to the court. He pointed out that Trevor Buchanan's parents had both died thinking that their son had taken his own life, saying, quote, It is particularly poignant to read the descriptions of the effect of the death of their son on Trevor Buchanan's elderly parents, whose remaining years were blighted by the severe effect of their son's death upon them. It is apparent from what each has described in their statements that many lives have been gravely affected for many years by these murders. End quote. Hazel Stewart was handed down an 18 year minimum sentence for her part in the murders of Trevor Buchanan and Leslie Clark. After the trial, Trevor's brother Gordon spoke to the press. He said, quote, While there is immense satisfaction that justice for Trevor has finally been achieved, there is no sense of victory and no cause for celebration, as nothing can bring Trevor and Leslie back to us, and all families connected to this matter have been grievously impacted. In June of 2011, a new inquest was held in relation to the deaths of Leslie and Trevor, recording their manner of deaths this time as murder. After the court procedures, Howell was the subject of an investigation by Inland Revenue in relation to his tax affairs. Before his arrest, however, Howell had destroyed a computer which contained information about his financial affairs. Not only had he left patients out of pocket after the closure of his dentistry business with hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of procedures cancelled, he had defrauded an insurance company but he still had significant assets tied up in property. 
Kyle and her children returned to the United States and she filed for divorce. She had been under investigation by police after Howell's confession and the revelation that that wasn't the first time that Kyle had heard about it. But in November of 2013, it was confirmed by the Public Prosecution Service that Kyle Jorgensen would face no charges in the matter. There was a police ombudsman report made regarding the initial investigation into the deaths of Leslie and Trevor after they received complaints from their families after the convictions. The report concluded that there was a bias in the investigation after two of the senior officers involved accepted the suicide theory early on in the investigation. Little forensic evidence had been gathered. Fingerprints that were taken were not examined, including those lifted from the vacuum pipe and the cassette tape player. Injuries to Trevor's face were not documented, and no one probed the obvious inconsistencies in Colin Howell's stories told to the police in the days following the deaths. Information that had been given to police regarding the Howell's financial circumstances and the incident regarding the electric cable were not followed up on. It would turn out that Derek McCauley, the former neighbour of the Buchanans and mutual friends of the Buchanans and Howells, had steamed open the letter that Colin had given him to pass to Hazel in the days after Leslie and Trevor's deaths. Not only had he read it, he had photocopied the letter and filed it away, just in case he ever needed it. Eighteen years after he put it away, he handed it over to the police during the course of their new investigation. It had never crossed his mind that one of the final lines in the letter saying, quote, I have taken the mother from my children, end quote, meant that Colin had killed Leslie. Macaulay thought Colin was referring to the fact that the affair had led to Leslie's suicide. He'd thought the letter was crazy and that Colin was deceitful, but hadn't thought that Howell was a murderer. The coroner at the time of Leslie and Trevor's deaths said that he had queried the sedative drugs that had been found in the two victims' blood at the time of their deaths, but said that all of the procedures had been followed correctly and he had no reason to question the integrity of the police investigation in relation to their deaths. He spoke to author Derek Henderson and said that Hazel had seemed to him to be a pleasant enough woman, but that he reckoned Howell had been a chancer. Still, he had believed their testimonies at the time. David Green, one of the people who found the bodies and was a member of the Baptist Church and a police officer in another station, said later that he had raised concerns about the deaths after they had happened. The story didn't make sense to him. If Leslie had been so impaired, he didn't understand how she'd been able to drive off. If the two of them had pulled into the garage, why was one of the rear lights on and why was the window open? Why had Trevor and Leslie both made plans for the following few days? He told members of the church and police force of these concerns, but there was no record of that in the file from the time. Green felt that his concerns were ignored, and eventually he distanced himself fully from the deaths because he felt, as he wasn't an investigator on the case, it wasn't his place to interfere, and he had done everything he could. The senior officer at the time, Hamilton Houston, told author Derek Henderson that, had he been aware of the concerns, the investigation would have gone further than it did and in a different direction. The PSNI released a statement after the delivery of the report apologising to the Clark, Howell and Buchanan families. In the subsequent investigation into sexual assaults committed during the course of Colin Howell's work, 
28 women came forward to be interviewed by police. Cases relating to five of those women went through the courts. They had attended his practice for cosmetic dental surgery and had been given a strong sedative to facilitate this. Howell had insisted on walking the women down the stairs of the practice and out, saying that his nurses wouldn't be strong enough to catch these patients should they become unsteady or fall. In 2011, the women appeared in court and said that they recalled that Howell had manipulated their arms to have them touch him or that he'd groped them. When challenged about the behaviour later by a patient, Howell had said nothing of the sort had happened and this was a false memory which must have been the result of the drugs used. On Tuesday the 17th of May 2011, Howell pleaded guilty to 12 of the 17 charges laid against him in relation to the assaults on his patients at his dentistry clinic. A jury had been sworn in in preparation for the trial going ahead, but Howell changed his plea at the last minute. The court was told that all of the women had been administered midazolam, but that the doses had been within the recommended range. The other five counts were left on the books, meaning that they could be brought against Howell at a later date. The jury was dismissed. Howell was given a five and a half year sentence for these assaults, and his name was added to the sex offenders registry. As a result of these convictions, Howell lost his pension from his work as a dentist for the NHS. Today, only one of Howell's children has remained in contact with him. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Meredith Daly, Jean Lee, Maya Dumphy, Kieran Cullen, Dizzy DJ, Jessica Stauffer, Rachel Clark, Alison O'Brien, and Margaret Scherfey and Aaron Keeley who have upped their pledges. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mensrea going and Along with the warm fuzzies of helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes as well as nifty merch. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Get all the info you need on your own fertility hormones at Modern Fertility. Don't forget to check out BetterHelp to keep up with your self-care and spend a fun evening solving crime with unsolved case files. Supporting our sponsors supports this show So head to the show notes and check out these awesome products and services. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written and produced by me, your host Sinead. One of the main sources for this episode was the excellent and thorough book, Let This Be Our Secret by Derek Henderson. Please do check it out. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Before I go, I just want to apologise for the lack of an episode two weeks ago. Here's what happened. I was already behind schedule because school is back in session and I'm transitioning back to working during the day, which, for a sleepaholic like me, is really hard. And then I had a mild incident where my car tipped a wooden stake while I was reversing out of a parking spot. 
the whole damn bumper came off. I didn't even have my foot on the accelerator and the bloody stake was fine. But I was stuck all day in Dublin. That happened the day I was planning on releasing, so all of that went out the window. Thankfully, everything is beginning to get back on track. So thank you all for your patience while I sorted all of that out. And to everyone who checked in on me, I'm fine, but my pride is not. Anyway, that's the update. Mainly, I just wanted to say thanks. And hopefully this episode has been worth the wait. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And be careful when you're reversing... Thank you.